0: Uh, This summer, we have been focusing on the arts and the practice of hospitality. We capped it off last week with uh, the whole church gathering for a meal, enjoying the gift of each other. I had so much fun uh, playing kickball, dominating your kids at the water balloon toss. Um, (laughs) uh, It was a blast. If you see Catania, if you see Eve, if you see Mike, you know, say thanks to them. Uh, Jeremy and Scott, Scott, I saw you earlier, hero on the grill right there. Um, there's something to that moment of eating and drinking with friends, gathering in a circle around a, a picnic or around a table with people we love, with food in our stomach, a good Belgian in our hands. If you're old enough for that, uh, the gift of presence, being with and receiving each other, conversation that flows just that much easier when you are around a table. A decatur on one of these summer. Evenings we've been having lately where it's the cool breeze and you're just like, wow, if it was like this all the time, it would be perfect. And you walk out into the square, the restaurants are packed, people eating inside, people eating outside, the string lights out there, hit, uh, you know, people laughing, people enjoying each other. Or you're waiting for a table at Oakhurst Village and every place is packed. Or you go to uh, a fusion joint out on uh, the Beltline with uh, some hipster es- esoteric name that you pretend to get. Um, but people, they come from all over to this place for food. And this kind of internal compass that we have that draws us into a table with others, we've been saying all summer long that it's not simply about food. I mean, there are far more efficient and far more cost-effective ways to get calories into your body. Gathering for a meal is never just about the meal. We don't just gather for fuel or for enjoyment but we gather for a kind of shared experience, what the writers of the New Testament call communion. There was a study recently out at Oxford University that looked at the connections between mental health, well-being, and, uh, and, and, and communal meals, and the author of the study summed up his findings like this. He said, those who eat socially more often feel happier and are more satisfied with life, are more trusting of others, which, man, we need that right now, are more engaged with their local communities and have more friends that they can depend on for support. Evening meals that result in respondents feeling closer to those with whom they eat involve more people, more laughter, more reminiscing. And yet the same study found that, at least in England, uh, the number of people who eat in community is kind of at a cultural low point. I suspect that things are not that much better this side of the pond. The findings were published under a peer-reviewed article with the name Breaking Bread. And even the title of that article nods to the spiritual longing that's present every time we gather around a meal We gather because we long for a life that is more than simply going to work, more than punching a clock to collect a paycheck, and then going home to put fuel in our bodies, to wind down by watching one episode or ten of Stranger Things, and all before we turn out the lights and recharge the battery of our bodies so we can go back and do the daily grind all over again, staying there between that, that space between wakefulness and sleep, and we're wondering man, is this really all that there is? No, we crave something more. We crave something deeper. We, we crave to be connected with others in community. But even more than all of that, we crave to be part of the triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We long to be in communion at home in the kingdom. And the table is the place where God's hospitality is offered to us. We gather to break bread because when we do, Jesus is made known to us in the meal, in the word, and in the shared community that gathers in his name. And so as we wrap up this series, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13 to a story where Jesus is made known at the table. The story takes place on the first Easter morning, on the third day after Jesus was dead and buried, the risen one brings hope to the disenchanted so that they can offer hope to others. And I think in that way, it is a story that speaks to our cultural moment when hope seems hard to come by. So let us hear what God is saying to the church. Now that same day, two of them, two disciples that is, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces Downcast, One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. So some of our companions went down to the tomb and found it just as the woman has said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that just as you met these two disciples on the road, that in the opening up of Scripture and in the breaking of bread, you would be revealed in our midst. And that we would follow you with joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, I think one of the problems that uh, those of us who hang around in the church or have done so for a while, uh, find when we come to a story like this is that we we know it, you know, pretty well. Uh, We know that it's Jesus who is there with these two disciples. Uh, We know that it's him that they're talking to the whole time. And so we kind of watch the scene unfold like an audience in a play who knows something that the characters on stage don't yet know. And they're waiting to figure it out. Uh, our waiting is filled with the anticipation of the joy that's going to happen to them when, when everything is revealed. But their waiting is filled with anxiety and pain and disappointment and heartbreak. And so it's kind of hard to put yourself in that mental and emotional space of disappointment that these first disciples felt. They were followers of Jesus. They had spent whole lot of time with him. They had watched him heal the sick. They'd watched him feed thousands of people. They'd they'd seen him show authority over the powers of evil and darkness that had consumed people. They had listened to him speak truth about the kingdom of God, only then to watch him die on a Roman cross. And so they're out here on this road, suspended between the pain of Good Friday not yet to the joy of experiencing the resurrection on Easter morning. And all they can say is, we had hoped. The thing is, we don't really know where Emmaus is. Uh, what we know is that it is seven miles away from Jerusalem, which is to say, it's that place that is just far enough away from the hurt. And we don't know who these two disciples are other than that one is named Cleopas. The other doesn't have a name. Which means he could be anyone. Which maybe is Luke's way of saying he could be you. And maybe you know what it's like to walk that lonely road to Emmaus, to walk away in disappointment, to walk away in disillusionment with with hope hanging in the past tense. And maybe you're here this morning because the disappointment you have felt is unbearable and you're looking for a new foundation to build upon. And even if that's not you, then you certainly do know people for whom the evaporation of hope is all tied up with walking away from things, from, from church, from faith, from community. And you step back for just a moment and you see it's not just individuals that are walking away. Our whole culture feels like it's positioned in that void between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We had hoped. It's a refrain that's been spoken throughout the generations. Uh, There are some sociologists who argue that America's primary emotion is disappointment. And, and that is, so the thinking goes, because we have this progressive myth that life is always going to be getting better, that there's this kind of social Darwinian view of history where there's this arc of human progress bending towards some future secular utopia, whether that's through capitalism or socialism or, or liberalism or whether that's through scientific or technological advances. The hope of the kingdom gets swapped out for the kind of hope that you'd hear in John Lennon's song, Imagine. Then the wars of the 20th century come along and they poke a little bit of holes. Uh, We saw death produced at a scale unimaginable. We see endemic poverty and racism and prejudice and, and environmental catastrophe. We see social fragmentation, institutional failures. We see the power of lies let loose in the world. And more recently, we see the power of a microscopic disease to stop dead in its tracks. The most technologically and scientifically advanced civilization this side of Wakanda. And so there's little appetite left for myths of inevitable progress. All we can say is we had hoped. Back in 1931, the poet Langston Hughes captured a sentiment that I think resonates with our age. He wrote this, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Let us take a knife and cut the world in two. And see what worms are eating at the rind. And yet for all of that exhaustion and, and disappointment and disillusionment, it's not as though our culture is walking toward the hope of the gospel. At least the hope that it offers. That, that hope seems quaint and outdated to make our way in the world. And that's in the best case scenario. At worst, it seems like an obstacle to human self-determination. It seems like the very worms that are eating at the rind of the world. And so we find ourselves in a post-Christian world where many are clinging to the expectation of a future hope only to be left with no power and no direction to actually provide it. Only disappointment, only disillusionment. And so our whole culture finds itself on the Emmaus Road walking away from Jerusalem. And maybe, just like Jesus, that is exactly where the church is called to be, on the road. Not walking away from hope, but walking with those who are. As the story goes on, a third person shows up and comes alongside these to travelers. We know that that person is Jesus, but we know that they are kept from seeing that it's him. It turns out that the risen Jesus is hard to recognize, which is all the more interesting that he doesn't like, you know, do this big kind of ta-da moment, this grand reveal. He doesn't like make them feel better immediately. Instead, he asks them a question. What are you talking about? He gives them space to tell their story, to speak their pain, to speak their disillusionment. I love how Luke captures the drama of this moment in this great line. They stood still, their faces downcast. They're walking, but they're heartbroken, and so they stop. And then Jesus stops with them, and he gives them the time to kind of collect themselves before they continue on their way. And then they tell their story. They say, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be this kind of political leader who was going to restore Israel to power, who's going to drive out those enemies. They had hoped for a domesticated God who was going to be for Israel and against the world. They hoped he was going to be that kind of king. But then they find that hope only comes after the cross. In a resurrected body, it's a sign of the promise of a new world. Hope comes in the form of a stranger who's going to walk alongside them in the midst of their disappointment. It's It's a small detail, but I think it says so much about the heart of God that Jesus stops to listen to the brokenhearted. He lets them tell their story and then he enters into their story. There's this little saying by Eugene Peterson that I love. He says, stories are verbal acts of hospitality, both allowing others to tell their story and entering them into our story. That is one way we are able to provide hope And that's exactly what Jesus does next. So the text raises this question. In a a world in which Jesus is hidden, this Emmaus story provides two answers for how Jesus gets known. And these answers are exactly how we as the church provide and show God's hospitality to the world. Jesus is known in the community that gathers around the scriptures, and Jesus is known in the community that gathers around the table. First, the scriptures. <clears throat> it's kind of funny to me. Every time I, I read this story this week, I, ha- I had the same kind of moment of just, you know, chuckling that, you know, after, Jesus, after these men tell Jesus their story, after they, they, they dump out their heartbreak, their disillusionment, their confusion about like, oh, he died. But then the women, they said that he was alive, but we went there and we didn't find him. The tomb was empty, but he wasn't there. And they're, they're just, they're heartbroken. They're devastated. And the first thing Jesus says to them is, oh, you foolish men. <laughs> I mean, I've taken a few pastoral care classes, And I think my professors in seminary would have a hard time with Jesus. But the next phrase, Jesus gets a little bit more to the point. In Greek, it's rendered like this. And how slow of heart are you? And I love that phrase. It's so interesting. And I think what he means is that their hearts cannot catch up with their heads. They cannot believe what they already know. And so Jesus takes the time to sit with what they can't believe. And he does it by explaining what they already do know, which is the story of scripture, the story that they have been raised with their whole lives. And he begins to show them that everything in that story points to how the Messiah should suffer, though he would be wounded for our transgressions, he would be pierced for the sin of the world. In short, Jesus does a Bible study on the road. He says, look, you're not going to be able to understand me, the word made flesh, unless you understand the word that I have given to you. And so Jesus explains it to them so that they can find him in the story. And so that their hearts can catch up to what they know and recognize who it is that is on the road with them. A little bit later, they say to each other, when they're recalling this experience, did not our hearts burn when he opened up the scriptures to us? So maybe it's pretty good pastoral care after all to open up the scriptures so that people might enter into them and find the risen Savior, find a hope that can be taken to heart. And I think for those of us who follow Jesus, the implication of this is super, super clear. If the risen Savior took time on that first Easter morning to open up the Bible and show himself and explain the scriptures, then we are not going to show Jesus to people any other way. Jesus is revealed in the community that gathers around the scriptures. And secondly, Jesus is revealed in the community that gathers around the table. Cleopas and this other disciple, they bring Jesus into their house. Uh, They show him hospitality. He's a stranger, but somehow in this act of fellowship, Jesus is made known. And when Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he he breaks it, he gives it to them, their eyes get opened up. And the language is almost identical to what Jesus says and does at the Last Supper, where Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, he gave it to them, and saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And we say those words every single week. Every week we are invited into the story of God's hospitality to us. But I want to suggest that when Jesus says, do this, the this that he is talking about is not just the bread and the cup. He is talking about the whole meal. He is talking about uh, the, the whole thing. Even more than that, he's talking about an invitation to life around the table, in community with other followers of Jesus. He's talking about a place where we will see Jesus as the host of the meal. Casey, you are a mind reader. Thank you. (laughs) He's not saying, you know, come up and do a cracker and, and a shot of grape juice. He's saying, do life around a table. Do life with me at the center of the meal with other followers of Jesus all right here. He's talking about discipleship via a dining room table. And this is what the earliest Christians did. It was a meal together way before it was a mass. It was a place where the hungry were given food, a place where God's hospitality was shown even to strangers, those who were outside of the community. It was a place where strangers became friends. And the point of it is, he says, when he says remember, is not just to stick in the past tense but to participate in this resurrected life with him. The word that is used whenever Jesus says remember, uh, when we talk about communion, is the word in Greek anamnesis. It's It's a really cool word. It means literally to journey to the place where that memory is located. It's this kind of actualized awareness and participation in which past, present, and future all kind of get mashed up together. So in this table, we look backward to Jesus, but not just his death, not just, not just that part, but we look at his whole life his teaching, his, 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 his ascension, his, uh, his talking about the kingdom of God, his resurrection, the coming of the spirit. But we also look to the present, to his presence in the community that's gathered around us. And we look forward to the future, to the renewal of all things. This place where all of the, the Hebrew prophets up through John the Revelator said, the place where we will gather together in a feast with the lamb at the center of the table. Where everything is renewed, where everything is as it's meant to be. Imagine those big giant kinfolk tables, but they stretch from Maine to Chile, a place where God is at the center, past, present, future. We come to the table, Jesus is at the head. I'm going to see if I can kind of offer an analogy that I crowdsourced from my community group. Now, there are five seminary degrees between the nine of us so either this is going to be brilliant or it's going to be terrible and it's kind of a crapshoot as to which one it's going to be so we'll give it a shot but if you think about you know a memorial service i have had the privilege in my you know being a pastor of doing a lot of them and the the ones that are always the easiest to do are the ones in which the family you know is is close in which mom or dad they just they just you know, they, they they love their their their, their kids and Where where Christ was at the center of the family life, they're always just easier to do. There's no fighting. There's no, you know, weird stuff that can can often happen. But when you when you take place in or take part in one of those things, it kind of shapes you too. And you're not just remembering who the person was at the memorial service, Uh, and particularly if that if that person was deeply connected to you, you're celebrating how their past has shaped who you are in the present. And also how they're going to continue to shape who you become in the future. You're looking at how everything that was good and beautiful and true is going to have reverberations in the future of your life. And so you see how you were, you see how you are, you see who you might become all at the same time. And so when you remember in that, that memorial idea of, of a memorial service, it's both pulling from the past and, and, and staying in the present and, and pulling from the future to shape how you exist in the present. Does that make sense? Four too many seminary degrees, I'm guessing, <laughs> from that. Okay. Well, I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this life with other followers of Jesus in a table around me. Remember the story of the past. Remember where the story is going. Let the past and the future break into the present and direct and shape how you live in the here and now. Because something happens at a meal when Jesus is present. And so what would happen if whenever you ate in your community group, whenever you had a meal together, uh, whenever you ate with other followers of Jesus or, or your family, you just simply took the time to be present, to acknowledge Jesus' presence in your midst, to acknowledge the presence of each other, to practice recognizing the presence of Jesus in each other and around the table. And I think that what would happen is if you can recognize his work in and around the table, you can recognize his work in and around other aspects of your life as well. And one of the reasons that we practice the hospitality of Jesus with each other when we gather together in community is because it shapes us to live in the present, but it also shapes us for the future in which those who are not yet part of the family of God might have a sense of God's hospitality and welcome extended to them. One of the most fascinating books I've read recently is by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, By her own description, she she describes herself as a secular, leftist, progressive academic at Syracuse University, a critical theorist by discipline. She set out to write a book that took uh, aim at religion and at the Bible, a literal reading of which she saw as sloppy, non-progressive, and dumb. Quote, (laughs) So part of her research, she's like, well, you know, I think Christians are stupid, but I know I need to talk to some of them to kind of get a sense of why on earth it is that these people would elevate some, you know, scrubby old book from a long time ago and place that above the the actions and the desires of good, you know, meaning, well-seeking people in the present. Well, before long, she found herself in the driveway of Ken and Floyd Smith, a, a local pastor and his wife who invited her over to come to dinner. And, you know, she said, well, great, unpaid research assistants, awesome. But she describes how in the day that the the first meeting with them came, she sat in her car in their driveway thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for the barrage of ignorance and, and stupidity and just judgment that I'm going to get from these people. She was sure that they were going to reject her. She was sure that they were going to make her on the defensive. They were sure she was going to criticize her. But when she came to their door, she crossed into a whole new world. And this is what she wrote. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened the way I expected. Not that night or in the years after or in the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. The community gathered around Scripture, gathered around a table was able to walk her down this road of disappointment where she let go of everything that she had been certain of up until that point, everything that had given her hope it had proved to be a, a disappointment or disillusionment, but it gave in its place birth to this hope that she never thought she wanted, but that she could never again imagine life without the word of Scripture became embodied in a community around a table. For disciples who welcomed Jesus into their home on that first Easter morning, the Scriptures in the table were also connected. Their eyes, they were opened up around the table because Jesus took the time to open up their eyes to Scripture on the road. And so, all souls, we belong out there on the road with those who are walking away from disappointment to those who say we had hoped only to find that hope evaporate we walk alongside not as victors not as people who've got it all figured out but as fellow travelers as fellow people who have experienced longings and losses but as people who have also experienced the hope that comes when jesus is known around his scriptures and around the table You see, my favorite thing, the best thing about this story is that after this meal, after this amazing experience that these two men have, where Jesus shows up in their midst, is that they don't stay seated. They don't say, that was awesome. Let's keep having this dinner, just the two of us, again and hope that Jesus shows up again. No, they remember that Jesus met them in their hope He met them in their disappointment. He met them out on the road. And they say, well, we've got to carry that hope out to others who are on the road. That was God's hospitality to them. And so they walk back into the city that very night. The thing that they had told Jesus not to do because it was getting dark, they walk back into the longings, into the losses of others. They take the hope that they have and they give it to others. And when they do, Jesus shows up around the community of that table and he shares a meal with them one last time to show them that even at the very beginning of the renewal of all things, there is a meal. This is where the story is going, he tells them. This future is a physical future of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It's a future where there's food, but not just food. There's, there's cooking, and there's not just cooking, but there's fermenting, and there's not just fermenting, but there's brewing, and there's laughter, and there's reminiscing, and there is a community and a table with Jesus at the center. That's who we are. And so as we wrap up this practice of hospitality for now, I just want to ask, what would it look like if we were to see our homes not as retreats from the world, not as our home is our castle. We lived in Ireland for a while. I saw a lot of castles there. Castles have moats and parapets. They have things designed to kill you if they don't want you in. (laughs) What if we didn't see our houses like that, but we saw them as outposts of the kingdom in the world? What if we saw our tables not as a place where we could fuel our bodies before we're off to the next thing, but as a place to welcome others into the presence of God in a community gathered around a table? As a place to see Jesus and those around us. Because I think that if we could see our city from God's vantage point, we would see a lot of people walking away from hope And they're in their rooms, they're in their apartments, they're in their houses and they're lonely and they're hurting and they're longing for the love of a father that is revealed in a community. So every time we come to this meal, we come to receive the grace of God given to us. We come as an invitation to hope again. We come to receive God's hospitality so that every time we leave, We can be present to others who are walking away from disappointment and be present with them on the road walking back toward hope to to carry God's hospitality out into the world. And so friends, let us come to the table.